Stand by America. It's time for real television as MMM Carpets brings you movies till the sun comes up. Thing. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating and always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFelita, and I'm the show's Toastmaster General. So we're back uh, discussing and ruminating on my youthful obsession uh, with the Three Stooges. Actually, my my continued, my middle-aged obsession with them as well. Um, And... uh, you know, I said earlier that that I'd actually had educational opportunities because of the Stooges, um, and you know, one of them, as I said, was learning to read Roman numerals because I had to find out the year that the movies were made on, and they always put them in Roman numerals at the bottom of the screen. Um, but I also learned uh, I learned I learned how to make a movie, which was a pretty cool thing for a, a eight year old or nine or whatever I was at that time to learn. Um, I learned that there were such things as like shooting schedules and and uh, makeup and wardrobe call times and actors, you know, and and, and technicians and you know all kinds of stuff and um, and I learned uh, that because of my association with Ed Burns um, and I'm going to talk about that shortly because you know Ed, Ed was a seminal influence on me. I also just recently realized though that I also learned about mortality. From the Three Stooges. Uh, yeah, I, I, lear- I learned that people disappear. Anyway, let's get back to Ed Burns and my relationship to this wonderful man. father said, you know, I know this guy. And I said, do you mean Edward L. Burns? I saw his name on the Three Stooges movies. And my father said, yeah, Eddie, yeah, you want me to call him? Well, I'm sure he's a lovely man. He'd like to talk to you about the Three Stooges if you want. So he did so. And there began one of like my most precious and lovely early relationships. Uh, At age nine, I became friends with the then about 70-year-old Ed Burns. Ed Burns is not necessarily a household name, uh, unless you're a, a real film geek. But he is if you're a real film geek, because he was really kind of a legend in the cracks and crevices of, of the movie business. And his legend is based on three things. He was the sound recorder, on-set sound mixer, on almost all of the great Columbia studio movies from the 1930s. Capra. It's a, uh, it happened one night. Mr. Deeds goes to town. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Hawks. 20th Century, His Girl Friday. I, Ed was on the sets of all of those movies. That was just his job. And he had a terrific memory, and he loved talking about those experiences. But Ed wanted to be a director. And eventually in the 1940s, because he was also capable of writing, he w- was able to write himself into a job, Columbia needed more directors for their short subject unit, 
and Ed wrote some scripts, and they decided we'll let him direct a Three Stooges movie. And so the second part of Ed becoming associated with legendary stuff was he became a Three Stooges director. Uh, the third part is that he, in 1959, he directed Jaja Gabor in Queen of Outer Space for his sins. But, you know, a lot of people liked that movie, and that was Ed Burns, too. He did that, too. Um, but this was his career, and, and he was, by, by the 1970s, when we got back in touch with him, long retired. He lived in the San Fernando Valley. He, li- he lived in Van Nuys with his wife. He was a I, I can only describe him as courtly, a gentleman. It's the kind of guys I don't think we make anymore. There was something so civil about him and, and so open. And he, as a, as a kind of a snotty, precocious kid, I really liked it when adults didn't talk to me like I was a kid. And he never did. He always talked to me like an adult. He saw that I was interested in this stuff. And he was happy to talk to me about the Stooges and and his his life with them, and he liked that I was going to write a book with my with my friend. So one day, my father and I go out to see Ed, and and like I said, he lived in the valley in in Van Nuys. Now, I don't know um, I don't know who, who's listening. If you know about the San Fernando Valley, it's a brief description. It's hideous, <clears throat> and the area where he lived, Van Nuys, is is especially hideous. It, it's it's uh, it just is. I mean, it's just awful. It's like the worst of like the downtrodden suburbs anywhere in America, except it's in LA and you would kind of expect it would have gotten kept up. But, um, you know, Ed and his wife, Betty, they, they, they moved there in 1940, I think. And what they bought in 1940 was not what we went to in 1970 something. In 1940, it was all walnut and orange groves. And they bought a little ranch and they never left. Except over the years, all the other ranches left, and muffler shops, and Taco Bells, and and you know, and, and and hideous little convenience stores sprung up around them. And when we went there, they were the last house on the block. They were like right on Woodman Avenue, as I recall, in the north end of the valley. But it was very strange because entering their house was it was it was a little haunted. It was a little bit whatever happened to baby Jane, it was old Hollywood was still there in Van Nuys, but it was Ed and Betty Burns in their old house and they weren't going to leave. I think they had two or three acres behind them and they were, they were the last ones there. So I remember finding that quite, quite funny and quite interesting, but we had a great time talking and he asked me, what did I want to know? Um, there were a couple of things that I, I, I wanted to ask him about and, and specifically, I I wanted to know how long the movies took to make. And he told me, well, in the 1930s, seven or eight days. In the 1940s, four or five days. After that, I left, but I heard by the end they were making them in two days. So, yeah, the quality went downhill a little bit. Um, uh, I I remember asking him, too, something that I had noticed that I could never quite put my finger on, which was Curly, really the greatest stooge once talked in a very fast, snappy, and assured manner. In the neighborhood, aren't you? Once over lightly, yes, sir. Half hour? No? Okay. Tell me, is it as warm in the summer as it is in the country, or vice versa? Well, who cares? But somewhere when the Roman numerals turned into 1944-45, 
he slowed way down. He almost spoke as if he didn't quite know what he was going to say next. It sounded like this. Bet on you, flatbush flathead. Oh, shut up. I don't have to. Now, that was when Ed directed his first Three Stooges movie in 1945. It was called A Bird in the Head. And I asked him, I said, how come Curly speaks differently in those movies than he did earlier? And Ed, being a gentleman, kind of looked off in the distance and he said, Curly got sick. That's all he said. Then he told me a story that I, that I, I, I love to hear because it was his first directing assignment ever was that movie. And he said when, when he went to direct a bird in the head. He said Curly was really not well, and you couldn't really speak to him. Mo, who was his brother, had to tell Curly what they were doing. So Ed, as a first-time director, would have to say to Mo, I need you guys to do this, and Mo would say, all right, I'll, I'll talk to Jerry. Jerry was Curly's real name. I'll talk to Jerry. And he would explain it to him, and they would do it. But it was not going well. They shot for a day or two, and they were very behind schedule. And Ed realized this was like this was a bad way to start his directing career. And then fortune intervened. Franklin D. Roosevelt died. <laughs> and, the, and the studio called a halt to everything. Everyone go home for three days. We're taking this off. The Roosevelt, the president, died. And I remember Ed telling me it was a godsend to me. I went out on the golf course, and I figured out, so over three days, how can I get this movie shot? How can I work with, with, with Mo and Curly, with Jerry? How can I salvage something to make it okay? And he did. Uh, the, the Stooge movie he made after that was called Microphonies, and I would say that it was probably the best of the late Curlies. Um, he impersonates an opera singer. Well, I won't tell you the whole story, but... Um, but Microphonies actually got released first, and Ed always said it made me because they didn't see my lousy first film first. They saw my much better second film first. He also remember him saying to me that Curly was a lot different on that one. He was completely together. So whatever was going wrong with him at that time, it came and went. Yeah. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Over there. <laughs> <laughs> Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Use Gritto, radio friends. But I still wanted to know more. I, 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 need, I had more questions that I needed answered. Um, you know, Curly, he disappeared shortly after this. He, he stopped making those movies in the middle of that pie fight. Uh, and I asked Ed, you know, well, so did the two were the two connected somehow? Uh, and Ed didn't really want to answer that. He, he was a little reluctant, and he said, I don't know, Raymond, that, that may be a, a subject for another time. And, you know, my dad was sitting there with us, and, and uh, he gave Ed a look like, yeah, you can talk to him. Tell you talk to the kid. You know, my, my dad was pretty liberal. He trusted me uh, with information and the ability to absorb stuff. And so Ed went ahead, and he told me 
why Curly disappeared. And it was because Curly had a stroke. In the middle of that pie fight uh, on the set, suddenly Curly was immobilized. And he had to be taken away. And it being Columbia Pictures' short subject department, that didn't matter. Uh, they had to finish that, that film. <laughs> they were finishing that goddamn pie fight. Uh, and uh, Curly was whisked to the hospital, but Mo and Larry had to go on with the show. And Curly never returned. Uh, a, a very brief cameo uh, in, a, in a short a couple of years later, a Shemp short called Hold That Lion. But um, it's not even a talking cameo. He's snoring in it. Uh, and that, that was, that was a lot of info for a kid. And I, I was interested in it, but yeah, it was a little strange. Curly just stopped being Curly one day and he died a few years later. Um, but then that led me to think, well, what happened to Shemp? And surely Ed must know about that too. And uh, again, he kind of looked at my dad like, "Mm, is this, we're going down this road of heavy stuff. And you know, my dad was like, yeah, just let's, you know, let's get it out there. It's okay. And it turned out that Shemp died uh, in the middle of a film, too. Shemp, they were shooting a movie. I think it was called uh, Hot Stuff. And uh, one night after filming, Shemp went to the fights. He, he, lo- he loved the prize fights. Uh, and uh, dri- driving home from the fights, he was in the back seat of a friend's car, and he just conked out. No warning, Shemp Howard was gone. Remember, it's Columbia Pictures Short Subject Department, so that doesn't matter to them. They had commitments for three more Three Stooges movies for that season, and they had theatrical dates to meet. So once again, Mo, <laughs> he lost his first brother, Curly, his second brother, Shemp, but he had a report to work for the next day. So what do they do? How do you make, how do you make Shemp Shemp if Shemp has disappeared? Well, as Ed explained to me, now he wasn't the director of these films, but he knew what was going on. What they did was they began to use the stock footage that came to dominate the late Stooge movies. And in addition to pulling footage from older movies, they still needed new scenes with Shemp. So they created scenes where Shemp didn't have to speak. And they used Shemp's double, a man named Joe Palma. Uh, he did all of Shemp's pratfalls for him for years. And he had a Shemp wig. He roughly resembled Shemp in physique. And they shot three more movies, Hot Stuff, Scheming Schemers, and Commotion on the Ocean, using old footage and Joe Palma playing Shemp, turning his head away. As I had observed uh, earlier, I said he he grunts and doesn't speak. He hides his face from the camera. Um, Years later, the director, Sam Raimi, coined a term for this, fake Shemps. In fact, fake Shemps uh, has a Wikipedia entry, which I, I highly recommend you reading. Um, the, the fake Shemp uh, was, was, was created by Columbia Studios and, and, uh, and the death of Shemp Howard. This was all a lot of information for a kid, but I, I, I respected Ed for telling it to me, and I, I learned, as I said earlier, something about mortality. You can disappear in the middle of a pie fight, and uh, you can disappear by going to the prize fights too, I guess. So this was all great stuff for my book, and Peter and I were were putting this <clears throat> book together. And I thought, you know, uh, if if I if I have people like this, I, maybe I can interview more people, and Ed can introduce me to them. Uh, Mo was alive, and he also lived in in the valley, I think, and 
I asked Ed, can I meet Mo? And he was a little standoffish about Mo. He said, oh, yeah, I can, I can talk to him. I, we don't speak much. We don't speak often. Uh, and he never came back to me with anything about Mo. And I was like, well, maybe there's something wrong there. I was already starting to read, like, when people are going to, you know, help you with something or not. I, uh, you know, so. Uh, but he did offer up his friend Christine McIntyre. Now, this is not a name known to most movie fans, but stooge people know who I'm talking about. Christine McIntyre was the dish of dishes. She was the blonde of blondes. She was the opera singer slash like mega hot, like femme fatale stooge dame. Uh, And uh, I knew who she was. And I said, I'd love to meet Christine McIntyre. And he said, well, she lives nearby, and she and her husband now own apartment buildings and manage them. Oh, I haven't spoken in a while, but let me give her a call. Might be fun for you guys to meet. Hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> Come in, Cousin Basil. Oh, I'm so happy to see you. I, I... I've just been dying to meet you. Uh, mm-hmm. I... You're even cuter than that lady said you were. <laughs> Oh, boy, success. Yeah, listen to those kisses. Cut it out. Oh, you must be exhausted after your long trip. Sit down. Let me look at you, Cousin Basil. Oh. Now, don't you go away. Hello? Yes, this is Miss Hopkins. Your Cousin Basil? Well, then who is... I was just... How dare you pretend to be my Cousin Basil? I'll teach you a thing or two. You won't. Don't you dare strike me. Taking advantage of a poor, weak, helpless woman. Boy, his kisses are getting loud. You, you, you horrible person, you. What happened, kid? Can I help it if I ain't Cousin Basil? I was thrilled by this. I was going to meet, you know, the, 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 the woman. And she's in microphone. And she's actually the singer in that. And, um... And then something went wrong, and I can't remember why, but it became clear that Ed's wife did not like the idea of him being in touch with Christine McIntyre. Mrs. Burns put the kibosh on that meeting. Maybe my father explained it to me. I guess that's what it was. I kept saying, when am I going to meet her? And my father said, I don't think Betty wants that to happen. And maybe even in my nine-year-old mind, I sort of understood that maybe Ed and Christine were a little more than director and actress at some point. So that didn't happen either. But uh, a great thing did happen uh, at that point, and it's something that really affected my life forever after that, is that one day Ed said, I have a bunch of scripts. Would you like to have them? And I said, "Uh, yeah. And he handed me a pile of Columbia Studio scripts from the 1940s and 50s. some uh, uh, three of them were stooge scripts. Several were other comedy teams that are best forgotten that did Columbia shorts that he also did. Max Bear and Maxie Rosenblum was one. Hugh Herbert was another. You know, um, later Ed directed some Barry Boys movies, and there were a couple of those. He gave me these scripts and he said, "Take them." And I went home, and of course, the ones I studied were the stooge scripts. And what was so interesting, well, there were two interesting things about it. 
to me immediately. One was that they were really scripted. Every slap, every eye poke, every every ear twist, every, every pratfall was in the script. They weren't making it up. They planned all this stuff. Open your mouth and say ah! It was also funny just seeing like the dialogue written like Mo says this, Larry this, but like they they were characters. It wasn't just them. Like I say, I kind of knew it, but I kind of didn't, and it, it made it clear to me. But what I really loved about the scripts was that in the front of each of them, the assistant director's daily reports were attached. And what that is, and they're still done, is the AD every day has to make out a report that says what time are the actors called for, what time do they go into rehearsal, what time do they go into the works, uh, wardrobe, makeup, uh, what time is the first shot made, when should you break for lunch, when did the, you know, it's the daily report. And Ed had pasted them all into the beginning of these scripts. And, you know, talk about reading tea leaves, I started to get my head into what was it like to make a Three Stooges short? The first thing that I loved, I remember, is that there were lines at the beginning that said things like, pick up Mo Howard, 5.30 a.m., with an address next to it. I think it was in Toluca Lake. Pick up Larry Fine, 5... Now, now it, it was funny because Larry got picked up earlier than everyone else. I always thought that was curious. How come Larry has to come earlier? But it was actually a job. They got picked up. They got driven to the studio. Uh, they they talked about, and then, and then the first shot was always listed. So on set for camera was 8 a.m. And the first shot was always like 8.15. And I remember thinking, that's fast. How, how did they quickly, they got them on set and they, they were 15 minutes later, they were shooting. And what I loved about that was it, it gave me kind of a view of my friend Ed. This this courtly, lovely, calm man. I went, I bet he was a he was a he was a goddamn taskmaster. He got on his set at 8 a.m. and he was like, get over here. Let's do it. Let's start. Bang, we gotta go. I got eight pages to do today. And you gotta knock each other over and we got slaps and we gotta we got props have to go and gunshots and things and we could go out the window. And first shot was always 15 minutes after they got there. And I loved that. It, it also taught me about film scheduling because up till then, I didn't realize that movies were not made in order. So I started to look at how the breakdown happened and how they shot all the scenes in the Stooge apartment and all the scenes in this. But, you know, I, I mean, we all know this stuff now. How you make a movie is not complicated to anybody. It's available to everyone. But then I didn't know it, and I don't really think that a lot of it was out there. So in a sense, the Three Stooges taught me the nuts and bolts of how you shoot a movie. Um, it's funny because I, I just mentioned Larry uh, and why he was picked up early. I remember one of the things I asked Ed about was what they were like. And he said, well, Mo was very businesslike. He was in charge. I thought, no, Mo was Mo. Maybe he didn't beat them up, but he was he was the guy in charge. He ran it. Uh, he, he, was, he, he wasn't terribly fond-sounding of Curly, of, of course, who he called Jerry. He said, Jerry, well, he wasn't very responsible. You had to you had to bring him in. He wasn't really 
focused. He wasn't really like he made him sound like he didn't really want to be there. And yet it's so funny because when you watch the movies, of course, Curly Howard is immensely there. <laughs> His performances are nonstop, you know, electric and crazy and funny and inventive. But somehow his impression of him was he, he, didn't, he didn't really like him much. Larry, he said, I remember he said he was a scatterbrain. He said Larry was a nice guy, but he, he couldn't remember anything. And he, he was late to everything. And he, he was a gambler. He, liked to, he was always off with a bookie or something. You know? So I remember when I connected that with his earlier call time, I thought, oh, well, Larry was a flake. They had to show up like half an hour early to make sure he was at home or to get him out of bed or like throw him in the bathtub and wake him up or something. You know? So again, it's like I, I'm, I'm trying to piece all this stuff together. And uh, I thought I had a book because I had these scripts. And I had these interviews, and I had these conclusions, and, and, and Peter and I thought we were going somewhere with it, and then, uh, you know, the rug got pulled out from under us. Peter's father lost his job, and they had to move to Northern California, and my buddy left. Nights are long since you went away. I think about you all through the day, my buddy, my buddy, nobody quite so true. I tried to push on with the book, and he and I spoke on the phone a little bit about it, but the air went out of the project without Peter being part of it. I didn't really know how to pursue it. Uh, so, you know, I don't know where, I, is it somewhere? I don't think so. You know, when my parents passed away, I combed out everything from their house, and I did not find a copy of the films of the Three Stooges, but who knows? Maybe someone found it. Maybe it got sold in the estate sale. I don't know. Anyway, uh, another twist, though, happened, and, and this was before we abandoned the book entirely. I think Peter had left, but so I, I mentioned the KBSC television. I was still watching uh, the, the, the Stooges on that, and Larry Fine appeared in a commercial. He was in his late 70s, and he was hawking a, a, a memoir that he wrote. It was called A Stroke of Luck. And I saw it on TV in the middle of one of the Stooge shows. There was Larry Fine, old Larry. Looked like Larry, but he was Larry in a wheelchair, and he had a the lopsided, you know, the stroke, one side of the mouth down thing. But there he was. He was Larry. And he lived at the Motion Picture Country Home in Woodland Hills, and he invited kids to come out and visit him. And so, of course, I had to, you know, I had to go try to make that happen. My sister took me. We, we schlepped out to the motion picture country home in Woodland Hills. We went to Larry's room, and uh, he was very sweet. He was a little limited in what he could talk about or say, but he knew I was a Stooge fan. He signed a little autograph for me, another thing that I don't know what happened to. Um, now, one thing he told me, I, I said, can I interview for my book? And he said, no, my book's coming out, so I can't do any interviews. 
And then he told me that the person who co-wrote the book with him, he was suing because that guy got all the money. And I thought, oh, for God's sakes, Ed was right. He was a, he was a fucking scatterbrain. He was an idiot. Larry made a bad deal with the guy who ghost wrote the book. It all made sense. Larry, Larry was a lousy business guy. Even in trying to put together his little memoir, he managed to like lose the money somehow. The other thing I remember about meeting Larry was uh, while I was there, a woman named Babe London came to visit. Again, unless you're a stoogeaholic, the name doesn't mean much. But Babe London was the fat chick in the Stooge movies and in other comedies. She was a big, heavy blonde. She was very funny. She turns up in Hal Roach, Columbia comedies, 30s, 40s, 50s. And while I was there, Babe London showed up. She must have been 75, 80 years old. And she brought flowers and candy for Larry. She wanted to see her friend Larry. I was astonished. I recognized her. It's like, that's the fat chick. Here she is. Those are my two memories of, of seeing Larry there. Um, and, and like I said, you know, things, things sort of went away after that. I, I tried to research more. Like I said, I never liked the Joe Besser movies. Joe was around, but I didn't try to meet him. There were the Curly Joe movies from the 60s, which were a disgrace. I, I didn't want anything to do with those. And I moved on. Ed lived a long time. Ed lived to his 95th birthday, I believe. And a, a couple of years before he passed, I got back in touch with him. And he was all there. He had, he had had some physical problems, but he was fine. Mind all there, loved to talk on the phone. I spoke to him a few times. And um, on a trip to LA, because I was living in New York, uh, I, I said, can I come see you and take you to lunch and he said of course it'd be great so I drove out to the the, the, the weird ranch that still existed in the between the muffler shops and the uh, and, and the Taco Bells and there was Ed living alone at that point his wife had died and um, his his favorite place to go was Van Nuys Airport had a funny old coffee shop and he'd been going there for years. Apparently, there was a golf course nearby that he also liked. So I would take him. The few times we did it, I'd take him to the Van Nuys Airport. Uh, and we chatted about stuff. And he asked me about my career. By then, I was in my 30s. I was telling him what I was doing. I always liked to ask him about more than the Stooges. We talked a lot about the Capra movies. We talked about his life as a, you know, as a... He was one of the original sound engineers in Hollywood. He was hired, you know, in 1928, 29, when sound was just coming in. So we talked about all kinds of stuff like that. But I had to bring things back because I never really got the answer uh, to why did Curly change. I remember he didn't answer that question. And I thought, I don't know why. You know, they, they, they'd hurt each other, but the, the, you know, the ethic at that time was comedians were tough guys, slaps to comedians. You fell, you took a fall, you hurt yourself, you got up. And I said, you know, I, I have to tell you, it, it's always been on my mind. Uh, I was always curious, even as a kid, when you explained to me what happened to Curly and what happened to Shemp. Um, 
you know, the third stooge uh, always took the brunt of the physical abuse. Uh, yes, Mo got his eyes poked, usually by accident by the other two, uh, as opposed to, you know, being the aggressor, as Mo usually was to the other two. And Larry got, he took some punishment, hair pulls and nose tweakings and eye pokings. But Curly, Curly got the shit kicked out of him. Uh, and so did Shemp. Uh, the, the, the third stooge took the brunt of the abuse. And in two cases here, with Curly and with Shemp, they both died unexpectedly and, and, and of, of causes that could only been, have, due to, uh, have been due to stress uh, and uh, perhaps even, you know, perhaps even brought on by real physical uh, violence. And so I said to Ed, I, I just wonder what your opinion is. Did Curly Howard and Shemp Howard actually die for their art? And Ed looked out the, the windows, which overlooked the Van Nuys airport. I believe a small Cessna was landing at that moment. And he thought about it. How did he want to answer this question? And finally, he said, well, you know, Raymond, when you really love what you do, you will take crazy chances to make your work even better. And so... Uh, it all brings me back to woman haters. And I, I don't know why. That short, it, it, to me, it, it's the beginning and the end of the Stooges, and it's all in their very first film. Uh, there they are, in, as young Stooges, and then at the end, uh, as inexplicably old Stooges. But they're all still together. And at the end, they sing that song. They sing it to each other. They sing it to their fans. And I sing it back to them. Mo, Larry, Curly, Shemp, and not Joe. You are my life, my love, my all. The 30th meeting of the Woman Haters Club is called. Mr. Chairman, there's a man outside. Tell him to come inside. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, you can visit my blog where I post videos related to the subjects that I interview. Just go to moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. You can find this podcast at moviestilldawnpodcast.com, but we're also available on most of your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify, and YouTube. I would love to hear from you. If you're inspired to reach out, you can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. And if you have a film geek in your life, or even just a mildly curious fan, spread the word that we're here. <laughs>